Amen. Well, we have uh, done Alpha twice for the adults and once with our student ministries. We've been talking about it a lot here at Rio recently uh, because we're about to launch it again, not this Thursday, but the following. And our experience with it has been exactly what these people who were chosen from all over the world experienced. It's really an excellent, fun, awesome kind of a time. And it's a time where we come together. It starts at 7 o'clock. It'll be in the attic, which is on the second floor of our school, on the north side of the school. Uh, There is a free dinner, and the food is really legit good. No kidding. Like, we want everybody to feel honored, so we give good food. And, um, and we gather together, we eat, we get to know one another, which has been like the favorite part of it for me. It's just the relationships that we've been able to build with folks. We watch a video, which is really, really, really excellent and well done, and it does present one of life's questions from the Christian perspective. So the first video, for example, the question is, is there more to life than this? And I think that's kind of a valid, you know, significant and important question. But then here's this, the best part. The best part is that after that, we break out into groups and, and then we listen. We talk and we listen. I think that one of the things that the church has maybe rightly been charged with not doing well is listening. And what we are committed to do in Alpha is to listen. And so you bring your skepticisms, you bring your questions, you bring your doubts, you bring your fears, you bring your hurt, you bring your anger, whatever it is that you associate with that, you bring that with you and, and we, we hear you out in authentic relationship. It's not one of these deals where we're like, you know, we want to get to know you unless you don't become a Christian and then we're not interested in you. No, no, no. We, we become friends in these groups and it's, it's really a fun and life-giving kind of experience. And so that card that was either on your seat or on the seat next to you when you came in today, hopefully, uh, is for you if you kind of fit into that category of people where you're going, yeah, okay, I'm not yet a believer in Jesus, but I'm at least willing to consider it, and you guys are telling me that this is gonna be a safe place for me to be me. And that's what we're saying. So if that's you, please join us. Again, a week from Thursday, you can sign up online. There's like a tile right on our website on the front page. Uh, Can't miss it. That would be great. But it's also for you if you are a believer in Jesus already and you just know people because it's for you to give away. Here's one of the beautiful things about Alpha. It it engages the entirety of the church. And I think a lot of us are like, man, I I don't know what to say to people if I talk to them about Jesus. And I, you know, I don't know. It kind of freaks me out. And, you know, listen, it freaks everybody out a little bit, okay? But what Alpha does is it enables you to invite somebody to come there and to trust us with them. No arguing, no pressure. We'll listen. And so what I want you to do today, this afternoon, is sit down and make a list of three to five people in your world, in your life, that you uniquely have relationship with. I want you to pray for them, and then I want you to invite them to Alpha like tomorrow, okay? So just boom, do it. Because here's what we can do. We can create the environment. What we can't do is step into the relationships that God has given uniquely to you with people who, you know, I mean, if you think about it, maybe really would enjoy this kind of a journey. We can't invite them, but you can. So I wanna challenge you guys to do that, okay? And to, and to knock it out, to get it done this week. All right, well, as Matt said at the beginning of our service, um, what we've been doing since the beginning of Advent is we've been asking and answering questions that have been crowdsourced from you guys, but the last three weeks, including today, they're questions that come to us from our student ministries, and I'm just gonna say it, I think they've been some of the very best questions that we've had. What is the big deal about sex? All right, here's the thing. It's good for you to know the answer to that if you're 50. 
It's like really good for you to know the answer to that if you're 15, because a lot happens between 15 and 50. Just trust me on that one. And all the 50-year-olds know that sex is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's unlike almost any other thing. So what's the big deal about sex? Where do I find my worth? Also a big deal, like it's good to know that if you're 50, but if you're like 15, it's really good to know that. Why? Because otherwise, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna try to manufacture your worth. You're gonna, you know, it's gonna be academics or it's gonna be, you know, athletics. It's gonna be something that you excel in, looking around, hoping that everybody notices. You know, you want trophies, you want degrees, you want plaques, you want stuff, you want things, you want success, you want all of these things that you think are going to make you valuable intrinsically. But in reality, they're just going to be stuff that your kids are going to have to decide what to do with when you're gone. Like, what do we do with these plaques? Like, I feel bad throwing them away, but do we pass them on? Hey, did you know your grandfather, again, 1983? It's a good question. Today's question is great, too. What do I do with my shame? Great to know at any age. There is freedom from shame at any age, but really good to know early on in life. Why? Because if you don't figure this out, if you don't get the answer to this, here's what you're gonna do. You're just gonna keep piling it up, piling it up. If shame accumulates, it grows. It's like a snowball rolling down a mountain that never ends until you're done. If you don't learn what to do with it, and in that sense that it just grows, it accumulates, you know, It's very much like guilt, but shame is different from guilt. And I want to show you the difference. Guilt says I did something bad. Shame says I am bad. That's different. Guilt says I failed. Shame says I'm a failure. Guilt says I made a mistake. And shame comes along and says I am a mistake. In other words, guilt comes to us with something that is true about us. I I, I made a mistake. I may have to, you know, admit that through clenched, gritted teeth, but nevertheless, I am confessing I made a mistake. And shame goes, oh, I am so glad you said that. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, because here's what I'm going to do with that admission of truth by you about you. I'm going to take it and I'm going to enlist it in my unending cause to try to get you to believe that you made a mistake because you are a mistake. Good grief, look at all your mistakes. Let me bring them all up for you. Let me parade them before you. Don't you get it? Don't you see? Don't you know? You're not just somebody who makes mistakes. You're someone who is a mistake. It is devastating. It's disabling. Guilt comes to us and says, here's a true thing about you. And shame says, I'm gonna take that true thing And I'm going to use it to convince you of a total lie, a disabling lie. And one of the reasons it's disabling is because as Brene Brown, who is a researcher, and she's done a lot of researching on shame, has said, and I've borrowed generously from her today, she says that shame blocks vulnerability. In other words, it says you're bad, you're a failure, you're a mistake, and as a result of that, here's what you cannot do. You can't let people into your private little world, like you can't be transparent with people. You can't let them know who you really are and what you're really like. And the reason for that is because if you do, shame says, they're going to realize you're not just a person who occasionally does something bad or fails or makes a mistake. They're going to realize what you already know, which is that you are bad, that you are a failure, that you are a mistake. 
Shame blocks vulnerability. And vulnerability, for example, is the key to creativity. Why? Because like, what is more vulnerable than creating something that is an expression of you? It's an expression of your intellect. It's an expression of your gifts. It's an expression of your talents, of your passions, of your effort, of your work. It's an expression of you. And then putting it out there for the world to see, hoping, I mean, let's just be honest, that everybody celebrates it. But fearful that everybody will denigrate it. Everybody will poke holes in it. Everybody will tear it down. And in tearing it down, it tears you down. And shame comes along and says, you know, you're bad, right? Like, you know, you're a failure. You're aware of that, aren't you? You're not just somebody who makes mistakes. Like, you are a mistake. Good grief. You can't put that out there. Just, you know, you just painted a picture. Great. Put it in the attic, man. Don't let anyone see it. Because then you'll be exposed. It's brutal. Vulnerability also interferes with our ability to dare greatly. Brene Brown talks about that. Teddy Roosevelt said this. I'm going to read you the quote, okay? And I want you to just feel the quote. Like, what does it make me feel when I hear this? Because I think, I think you're going to be like jacked. Like, you want to go out and do something. He says this. He says, it is not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst if he fails at least fails while daring greatly like I get fired up when I read that I don't think anybody reads that and goes ah just think I'd rather be the critic we want to live in the arena like we were made to live in the arena somewhere deep down in here we understand we're called to live in the arena We don't live in the arena. Why do we not live in the arena? Because guilt says, I made a mistake, and shame says, let me explain that to you. It's really not a mystery. It's because you are a mistake and you have no business being in the arena. To the list she gives, I'm going to add a few. I think that vulnerability is also the key to redemption. Because a story of failure or of hurt or of weakness or of loss or of tragedy or whatever, is not redeemed unless it's shared, is it? Otherwise, it's just trapped up in here, and it's of no use to you, and it's of no use to anybody else. But, but when you come out, when you're vulnerable, which everybody calls weakness, but really, it's what we admire as courageous, Like we look at people who are vulnerable and we go, man, that was courageous. Like we go up and thank them. We don't go up and go, I can't believe you did that. You're so weak. When they come out with the story, it's not just liberating to them. It's liberating to everybody who can relate to it. And lastly, I would say that vulnerability is also the key to love. In other words, a person who is never fully known is never fully loved. And they're always kind of wondering if this person who loves them would love them if... They knew them fully. Difficult, disabling stuff. So what do we do with our shame? Because it's an awesome question. 
And it's hugely important. And for the answer to that, we're going to turn to John chapter 8 in the life of Jesus, which is relatively early in John's gospel. And yet, if you know the story of the life of Jesus, even by John chapter 8, he has already so offended and so made envious the religious leaders of his day who are watching all of the people who used to revere them and who used to come to them and maybe who used to kind of worship them, leave them to go to Jesus, that they are at this point in the narrative already looking for a way to kill Jesus or to discredit Jesus. And in order to do that, in this particular story, they choose the topic of adultery. And the reason that they choose the topic of adultery is because under the law of God, the law of Moses in the Old Testament, adultery is punishable by death. And I just want to stop and just kind of let you go, what? (laughs) Because that's a shocking thought. And frankly, it's all the more shocking when you get to the New Testament and Jesus just redefines what adultery is. And he goes, yeah, I mean, it's the physical act, obviously. But if you look upon another person with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with them already in your heart. Okay, and that's a capital offense. That says something about marriage. It says something about sex is a big deal. It says something about the holiness of God. But so does Christ. What has Jesus done He's come into my life and yours to collect up all of the things that are capital offenses and less and to suffer them in our place. Let's not miss that. Anyway, they choose adultery because under the Mosaic law, it's a capital offense, but under the Roman law, and all the Jews were under Roman occupation, it was not a capital offense. And so they're thinking, we'll bring adultery to Jesus and say, all right, you got to pick between the Mosaic law and the Roman law. And here's the deal. If he chooses Moses then we'll take him down to the Romans and we'll say, you've got an insurrectionist on your hands here. Like you've got somebody who is advocating a higher law than the law of Rome and they crucified those people. So then he'll be dead. If he chooses the Roman law, well, then they'll just go to all the people who have left following them and have started following Jesus and say, well, how can you follow this guy? He places Roman law above the law of God and he's discredited. This is a brilliant scheme, and it is altogether evil. So in order to do this to Christ, they have to have an adulterous act. So they look for a woman who is either easily seducible or probably more likely already involved in an adulterous affair, and they look for a man who is equally promiscuous and so much more evil In fact, so evil that he is willing to utterly decimate this woman's dignity before the whole of their city, almost certainly in exchange for money. And they set up a liaison between them, and I don't mean to be overly graphic, but they position themselves in such a way as to ensure that guilt happens. And then they rush in. And they grab this startled, frantic, screaming at some point in this thing, maybe biting and kicking like at some point in this deal, woman, not the man. And they pull her out of the arms of this guy that she probably thought until that moment loved her. And they drag her out of the house and out into the street naked because her nakedness is evidence against her. It speaks of her guilt. And we don't know this, but maybe they dragged her by her husband's office. Husband sitting at his desk, you know, and they're like, hey, Bill, is that... Is that your wife? Maybe they dragged her by the playground at her kid's school. Hey, isn't that your mom? Is that, that, is that your mom? Maybe they dragged her out of the house and up the street that she grew up on 
All of her relatives lived on. Past her parents' house or sitting out on the front porch. Look, we don't know that, but here's what we do know. We do know that they took her into the most populous place in the whole city of Jerusalem. They took her up into the center of the temple courts. Guys, the temple was not just the center of religious life for the community. It was the center of economic life. It was the center of social life. It was the city center and everyone was there. And then they dragged her into the temple courts and dragged her through the crowd gathered around the most popular teacher in the temple courts, and that is Jesus. And then they deposit her naked in front of Christ while everybody's going, what in the world is going on here? And there she stands, naked before the Lord. And in that sense, she looks very much like me and you. See, the reality is no matter how many layers of clothing we wear, no matter how frantic we are and how much effort we put into hiding and keeping everybody not knowing what our issues are, Guys, Jesus is God. In his presence, we are naked in absolutely every sense of our being. And in that moment, guilt comes and says, oh man, did you do something bad? And shame says, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. Because I'm going to line that up next to all the other bad things that are true about you. Like, you know, you've admitted it over the years and now this is like a whopper, like this is the biggie. Yeah, you, you don't just do bad things. You are bad. Certainly that's what these guys think. What does Jesus think? What does he say? These guys deposit this woman at the feet of Jesus and they say to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Don't ask us how we know that, but just know that we do. Moses says that she should be stoned to death. Rome says she should live. What do you say? Because either way, we think we've got you on this one. And what does Jesus do? It says in verse six that Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And then as they continued to ask him and to press him for his answer, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So what has he just said? He has said, you know what? She is guilty. I uphold the law of Moses. That is worthy of capital punishment on the one hand. And on the other hand, he gives a job description for those who alone would qualify as an executioner. He says, guys, here's the deal. If after examining your life, there's nothing in your life that would qualify you for the same consequence and punishment that you are asking to be done upon her, then fine, you can execute her. If you can't, this is the drop the rock moment. This is the go home moment. And then we read that once more Jesus bent down and he wrote on the ground, and we don't know what he wrote, but we do know what they did. For it says, but when they heard this statement from Jesus, they put down their stones and they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. Why? Because you got a lot more shame at 50 than 15, and 60 than 50, and 70 than 60. Accumulates. It grows if you don't know what to do with it. And so these guys leave, and Jesus, it says, was left alone with the woman standing before him, at which point Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. 
And then Jesus Christ, who is the only person in her story or my story or your story who qualifies as executioner, like he's perfect, so he alone can throw stones. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Do you know what grows shame? Brene Brown says this too, and I think it's brilliant. Three things, secrecy, silence, and judgment. Meaning, I think our own judgment of ourselves, like where we we listen to what guilt says and we listen to what shame says and we say, you know what, I think you're right, I agree, I'm persuaded, I'm bad, I'm a failure, I'm a great big mistake. Or maybe it's the judgment of other people in our life, maybe even significant other people in our life who communicate to us directly or indirectly that we're bad, that we're a mistake, that we're a failure, or whatever the case may be. Secrecy, silence, judgment, That's what grows it. That's what cultivates it. That's what makes it take off and overwhelm us. What kills it is empathy. It's having the opportunity to sit down with somebody and go, okay, so here's the deal. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had that have started like this. I'm now going to tell you something that I've never shared with anyone. And then it's sharing those things that you've never shared with anyone. And then having that person who's listening to it all not go, oh my goodness, you're, you're a wreck, like you're bad. But instead, empathizing out of their own brokenness, out of their own story, have the ability to sit down and go, hey, you know what, that is something. And I can either relate because I've experienced pretty much the same thing, or I can't relate to that, but hang on a second, because I think maybe I can one-up you. What about this? And here's my story. It's freeing. It's remarkable. And the empathy that comes from Jesus is all the more powerful because Jesus is God-made man, guys, which again means that no matter how many layers of clothes we wear or how hard we try to insulate ourselves and not be vulnerable and not let anyone really see the real us and all of that stuff, he sees us. We are naked and exposed completely and utterly before him, and yet far from seeing us the way that these awful men saw this woman as someone who is worthless, as someone who is to be used and discarded. Jesus, with the whole of his life, says, I love you, and 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 we know that he's telling the truth. Because not long after her story, but long before mine and yours, he was dragged naked through these same streets by these same guys. And in that shameful condition, nailed to a tree. Why? Because he's guilty? No because I am. That's it. So that he could pardon our guilt, debt paid, so that he could free us from our shame. Identity established and not on the applause of other people. Shame says, I am bad. Jesus says, I have made you good. Shame says, I'm a failure. Jesus says, you have me. Like, is there anything better than that? Is there a greater success? Shame says, I'm a mistake. And Jesus says, let's clear that up. Let's fix that once and for all. Before the foundations of the world were laid, I chose you to be the object of my love and affections. 
And before you were even conceived, I knew every mistake you'd ever make. That's love. Fully known and therefore fully loved. So what do I do with my shame? I bring it to Jesus. Or maybe a different way of saying it is I could allow it to bring me to Jesus. That was, had to be the worst, best day of that lady's life, don't you think? On the one hand, most mortifying moment ever. On the other hand, single greatest moment ever. We can swallow it, we can eat it, we can deny it, we can ignore it, or we can acknowledge it and then take it to the one who alone can take it away. We take it to him, we leave it at his feet, and then we step boldly out into the arena of life. And we don't worry about whether or not people are going to celebrate us or criticize us because our value doesn't come from that. It's established. So I'm free to be as creative as I can be. And that's going to be less than some people and more than others. Right on. We're free to be creative. We're free to be daring and to take risks. We're free to fail, in other words, without having to worry about whether I'm all of a sudden worthless if I fail because, you know, my whole value is found in my ability not to fail. Oh my goodness, that's pressure. I don't need that. Nobody needs that. We're free to be redeemed. I don't have to worry about what you think of me. You don't need to worry about what I think of you. I can just say, hey, look, you know, here are my issues, and, and there it is, and right on, you know. Which, by the way, people don't look down on typically. They don't go, well, that's weakness. They go, wow, I can't believe you said that, man. That was courageous and helpful to me and many others who have the same issue or whatever. It's redeeming. You see the good that comes from it, and it frees you to live a life of love. To be you with the Lord who loves you and knows all your stuff and with others. To put your heart out there. To take risks knowing that your heart is secure in Him. Your identity is secure in Him. It's not based on somebody else and what they think of you. You're free to live a life of love. It's remarkable. And hopefully, you share that life of love. You know, you want to see other people understand it and experience it too. That's the wonderful thing about our God. You know, He's infinite. It's not like there's a, a contained amount of Him and we better keep Him to ourselves because, you know, there's only so much to go around. No, 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 He's infinite. Which means that we can be liberal. We can just share Him and spread His Word. So that's what I want you to do this week. I want you to interact with this message. I want you to make a list of three to five people. Invite them to Alpha. I want to see you free of your shame and others too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices. Not left us to the verdict of the things that we've done that have been bad or the failures we've experienced or the mistakes that we've made that you have not left us to the voice of shame, which is the voice of the evil one who seeks to destroy us. Lord, let us know that voice when we hear that voice and let us shut that down with the voice of a Savior who loves us, who calls us precious, who makes us clean, and who has given his all to make us his own. 
Let us be vulnerable. Let us tell our stories. Let us open up and lay down our shame. Let us take our junk to the feet of Jesus and learn how to dare greatly and learn how to be creative and put ourselves out there. Learn how to take risks, see our stories redeemed, and come to know love. Do these things for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.